John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine. And did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the gospel of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know if it's just me or if everybody is like this, but I have a particular interest and penchant, if you will, for talking to or hearing from experts, people that have particular expertise in a particular field. It's kind of fascinating to me, no matter what the field is, it's even more fascinating to me when that field is of interest to me, and I know a little, I love hearing from people that know a lot. There are nearly 250 master sommeliers in the world. It's a distinction that was originated in Great Britain in 1969, and these men and women know more about wine than anyone ever. And there's only 250 that exist in the world. The test and the process to become a master sommelier has been called by more than one credible source the hardest test in the world. I gather there could be some particular individuals that will take issue with the following statement, but some have even said, yay, that it's harder than med school. There's a documentary on Netflix Netflix entitled Psalm, S-O-M-M, short for sommelier. It came out in 2013, and it follows four individuals that are going through this process seeking to gain this particular distinction of master sommelier, to become and possess an expertise in the field of wine like no other. I've had the privilege one time of being at a restaurant in Boulder, Colorado, called Frasca, uh, where a master sommelier resides. His name is Bobby Stuckey, and just to add to the lure for me, he's a former professional cyclist, of course. He's a former professional cyclist living in Boulder, carries the title of master, master sommelier, and has a fantastic high-end restaurant and a side pizzeria on Pearl Street in Boulder. Nevertheless, 
the documentary Psalm. As you can imagine, they would have to know different nuances in wine. As you could imagine, they would have to be an expert in the different varietals of grapes and regions. A little bit more nuanced than white and red or sweet and dry. Um, they know more than simply, oh, this looks a little leggy as it sticks to the side of the glass, right? They know more than just being able to say, hmm, chocolate, cherry, tea-like, grapefruit, melon. They know more. The documentary says this, it's not enough to know every wine region, village, and district in the world. Just think about that. Candidates also need to know which years were better than others for each region. The blind tasting of six wines, this is kind of the culmination of this particular test, they blind taste six wines, uh, requires not only identifying the grape varietal, but the region it came from and the year it was made. You know, no big deal, just six wines out of, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, if not more, blind tasting You identify the grape, the region, and the year, blindly. That's merely scratching the testing surface, though. During the service portion, examinees have to recall facts about sake, spirits, distilling methods, aperitifs, and, of course, ideal food pairings. If a question was asked about the location of a village in Germany, knowing that one village is located... Is a very small, where that village is located is a very small part of the preparation for that question. To be sure to get that one question correct, one candidate said, I had to learn every major wine producing village in Germany, broken down by region in order from north to south, west to east, with two or three of the most important villages in each. In order to be able to recall that information on demand, I had to learn to draw a map from memory of every wine growing region in the country. Master sommeliers know a little bit about wine. They know a lot of facts about wine. They know maps about wine. They could recount in cognitive detail truths about wine. But you know the best thing about them? They know how to taste wine more deeply than the normal person. You see, John chapter 2 is about wine. We'll talk about that in a minute. But more deeply, John chapter 2 is about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. See, it's easy for us to know cognitively, though hard to believe, it might be easy to know cognitively, oh, the Lord is good. Jesus is synonymous with joy. The gospel is good news, not simply good advice, as he always says. But I mean, do you really know it experientially? Do we know it in a Hebrew type of knowing, which is far more than mere head knowledge? You see, it's easy, especially in the South, depending on your upbringing, to have the knowledge of Christ all around you and for it not to permeate your very being, your soul. 
You see, Jesus is not revealed to us in John chapter 2, or in any of the Gospels for that matter, simply for us to know about Him, like to detail or list facts. But John chapter 2 and the rest of the Gospels is an opportunity for us to know God. Not to know about Him, but to know Him. You see, preachers, we're not called to preach about the Word of God. We're called to preach the Word of God. And you see, there's a distinction. And so what my goal is, or what I think the gospel writer's goal is for us this morning, is to taste more deeply and more experientially the person of Christ. Not mere cognitive knowledge, but experiential, holistic soul-shaping knowledge. What was that knowledge? What is that knowledge for us from John chapter 2? I want us to see this morning in John chapter 2 that Jesus brings transforming joy. John chapter 2 is a proclamation to us this morning that Jesus has come to bring transforming joy. He has come to bring restoration. He has come to make all things new. He has come to bring a new order of things. He has come to bring a new covenant. He has come to bring something that is better than what has been. And my prayer and our goal this morning is that we would know that. Maybe for the first time ever. Or just maybe more deeply than we've ever known it before. That we would be able to taste and see that Christ brings transforming joy in John chapter 2. Joy is a hard thing in the Christian life. It presents problems on a number of different levels. One of the problems that it presents that has proliferated, unfortunately, let's say in broad evangelicalism, is what I would call a plastic joy, right? Christians, because we're Christians, if you are a Christian... You know, permanently have a smile on your face, right? I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian. It just means to smile. And to say that everything's good. And everything's all right. And to say that we're blessed. And that we're better than we deserve. All of which are true. The problem is, we rarely actually experience or believe those things. Yet we say them all the time. And so there's almost this veneer that exists over the broad evangelical church, which, by the way, non-Christians have sniffed out from a mile away and don't want anything to do with the church for a number of reasons, but surely this is one. Plastic, fake people, right? And so joy presents a problem in that way because it's not really real joy. It's fake joy, unfortunately. But joy also presents this other problem for the church or for Christians, Suffering, struggle. I mean, it's really hard to have joy and to experience joy and to taste deeply that the Lord is good when we're so bad or when we're living in such bad, hard circumstances. It's really hard to possess joy when you're confronted with death. And nor should we, by the way, a whole other sermon, but the way that Christians appropriate death oftentimes is not very Christian. You know, death is an enemy 
I mean, Christ came because death entered the world. Death is not something that we celebrate. Death is something that we mourn and that Christ overcomes. But it's hard to have joy in the midst of facing death. It's hard to have joy in the midst of facing sickness and illness. It's hard to have joy in the midst of our own sin and others' sin and the brokenness that exists in the world. So what in the world does this message of transforming joy mean to us this morning from John chapter 2? tell you what it means to us this morning is that Christ has called us to experience joy already truly in a deep way and not yet fully. We live in a tension. We live in a joyous tension, but we still have joy offered to us this morning. I want us to think more deeply about Christ bringing transforming joy as we see what Christ provides in John chapter 2. Christ doesn't only provide great wine, In John chapter 2, more specifically for our purposes this morning, Jesus provides a solution, Jesus provides satisfaction, and Jesus provides salvation. Overarching theme, Christ has come to bring transforming joy, restoration, a new order. More specifically, Christ in John chapter 2 provides these three things, and they happen to all begin with an S, wouldn't you know it? A solution, He provides satisfaction. And he provides salvation. Let's look at how Christ provides a solution in John chapter 2. A solution. What's inherent in a solution? A problem. What's the problem in John chapter 2? It's pretty simple. There's no wine. Like, this is a problem. Different people would estimate this problem in different ways in our own lives. But at this point, we need to go back to first century Judaism. And we need to understand the setting You see, weddings, Jewish weddings particularly in first century Judaism, and even weddings that are Jewish today, are a really big deal. I mean, I know weddings are a big deal to us. And a lot goes into it. A lot of energy, effort, a lot of joy, a lot of sorrow, a lot of tension, a lot of planning, a lot of money, right, goes into weddings All experts would say the common Western wedding or American wedding would only scratch the surface and therefore would pale in comparison to how big of a deal a wedding was in first century Judaism. You see, weddings in the first century in this culture lasted a week. And weddings in this culture truly were about the couple themselves, but more than just the couple, they really were for everybody in the community. For friends, family, relatives. So much so that people would move into and live with, under the same roof, multiple homes throughout the week of this wedding. It was a constant party. It was kind of this combination of a wedding, a wedding reception, other great parties, a reunion, a homecoming, all kind of piled into one. And it was a great feast, and it was a great party, and it was a great celebration, except if the wine ran out. That was a problem. It was embarrassing. Not like embarrassing, like, oh, these fr- my friends, I'm sorry, they got too excited. They kind of drank a lot of wine, they drank too much wine, and we're out, I'm sorry. See, another thing about their culture is it's a shame-based culture. And running out of wine evokes 
deep embarrassment and shame that scholars say a couple might never recover from their entire life. So it's not a casual thing to be overlooked. It's a really big deal. This is a problem. One other thing to say about this disaster and about weddings and a little bit more specifically about wine. And of course, there could be a long excursus on this and we could have fun talking about this later just for what it's worth so we understand where the Bible is coming from. Wine in the Bible, and there's various words used for it, never has a connotation of being unfermented. Uh, There are examples uh, in uh, their culture in the day, both in the Bible and outside of Bible, outside of the Bible in their culture, where there were times that wine was diluted with water. In fact, more times than not, the Bible distinguishes wine from even strong drink, which would be uh, likened to beer today, thanks to the Egyptians, I believe. Um, But the bottom line is, when the Bible speaks about wine, and I just say this not to make a point that I'm not trying to make, but just to be really clear, this wine was like wine that was fermented grape juice, so much so that the text even tells us that towards the end of the wedding or towards this particular time in the night, they had drank so much that the Greek word there is they were inebriated. Um, That doesn't happen from Welch's. You don't get inebriated from grape juice. Um, And I just say that just for integrity's sake. Just so we know what we're talking about. I don't say this to make a point, once again, that I'm not trying to make. I understand that alcohol and wine can carry with it some hard connotations. I think about the Latin phrase, abusus usus non tollet, which simply stated means abuse does not negate proper use. The Bible, page in and page out, proliferates moderation in all things, including the partaking in of wine and strong drink. The Bible seems to really embrace this reality in many ways. Psalm 104, verse 15, wine gladdens the heart of man. Isaiah 55, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, to you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Or Judges 9, 13, wine cheers the hearts of both gods and man. It's important for us to understand exactly what we're talking about here. Even Ernest Hemingway in the beginning of your bulletin said, wine is the most civilized thing in the world. Right? So this was a big deal for them. And this was a big problem. And as a result of this problem, Jesus' own mother comes to him and says, hey, I need you to fix this. This is a problem. It's really embarrassing for everybody. There's shame. Can you do something about it? So there's this request. And Jesus' answer, did you catch it? It's really interesting. And what the text, uh, or what scholars tell us about the Greek word there used for woman is that it had respectful connotations, but it was distinctly and intentionally not a term of warmth or endearment. And so what Jesus is doing here, uh, marital therapists would be really happy what Jesus is doing here. He's practicing what therapists call this principle of differentiation, right? He is, at this point, distancing himself from his family of origin in a healthy way, 
He's becoming his own person. He's finding his own voice. He's, you know, obliterating any connotations of what therapists also refer to as enmeshment. And he's doing the opposite of enmeshment. He's differentiating. And he turns to his own mother, I'm sure to her surprise, and says, Woman, not now. My hour has not yet come. It's really interesting. We don't know all what was going into Mary's mind at this point. We do know that this is a significant turning point in Jesus' life. Like at this point, things are changing. As he starts to launch his public ministry, this has various connotations, but one connotation that it has is a differentiation from his family of origin and a differentiation from the business as usual in ushering in a new order, not only for himself, but for all people, where he's communicating very clearly, I listen to one voice. I love you, Mom, but it's not your voice. I listen to the voice of my Heavenly Father. And what he's telling me is, my hour has not yet come. However, I'm kind of going to do something pretty cool right here. I'm going to perform this thing called a miracle, which is a supernatural act involving things that exist in a natural world. It's not something that's just neat or amazing or really cool. Childbirth is neat and amazing and really cool and something to be celebrated for sure. But guess what? It's not a miracle. It's within the confines of our biological makeup. It's scientific. It's beautiful, amazing to be celebrated. But to be technical, since we're being technical for a moment, it's not a miracle. Turning water into wine is a miracle. It's also an interesting miracle. You would think that Jesus right out of the gates, the first miracle, like do something really, really amazing. Like, really, really awe-inspiring. And make sure a lot of people are there. But here he is at a wedding. Affirming marriage is a side note. Pretty cool. The Bible has a lot to say about marriage. Genesis 2, a wedding. John 2, a wedding. Revelation tells us that all things come together at a wedding. Jesus was pro-marriage. It's another conversation, too. But here, in a group of family and friends, not a particularly huge or public gathering, Jesus does this thing that's seemingly simple. He just takes some water, maybe like 150 gallons of it, and turns it into wine. It's like really good wine. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus is communicating something here. He's communicating that he is the solution. That there's an acute problem that these people are facing in this acute scenario. And Jesus is actually graciously going to take them out of that acute problem. But he's also going to allude to something else. There's a lot bigger problem. Like, we're a problem. This world is problematic. This world, metaphorically speaking, is running out of wine. This world, metaphorically speaking, is longing for transforming joy. And Jesus, in a really beautiful and unique way, is going to send a sign. That's what miracles were. They were signs that pointed to something else. And of course, we've got to unpack in more detail what this sign was pointing to. And in order to do that, let's look at this idea of him providing satisfaction. 
So Christ here not only provides a solution, both practically and metaphorically and in a macro level by providing himself, he also provides satisfaction. This is what we're all longing for. Every day we wake up, we're longing for satisfaction. The bride and the groom and their guest wanted to be satisfied. They personally wanted to be satisfied, and they wanted everybody to experience satisfaction in this setting. And what we see here is that Jesus keeps the party going. Jesus, interestingly enough, becomes the master of the banquet. I don't know if you've ever been to a nice restaurant before, but once again, to culturally understand what was going on here, the text refers to this master of the banquet. And in in, in really nice restaurants, I think about being in one Burns Steakhouse in Tampa, which, you know, as a side note, has the largest wine uh, cellars and and, um, inventory in the entire world. Um, And then second is Blackberry Farm. But anyway, um, we shall not digress. Um, Burns Steakhouse has these incredible rooms where they have particular servers that work each table, and then they have these people called captains that oversee the servers, that oversee those tables, that oversee the whole section. Well, in this setting, what Jesus is talking about here is, and who he's interacting with here, and who the servants interact with, is the captain server. But what Jesus is actually showing through this satisfaction is that he's the captain He's the master of the banquet. He's the one that keeps the party going. Is that how you think about Christians? That's said all the time, right? Christians, you know, when I think about Christians, they're people that keep the party going. Christians, you know, they're amazing. They're like the masters of the banquet. No. It's so interesting that Jesus here comes across so normal. Like, he's just normal. I don't know. He's just hanging out in a social setting, talking to people, having a glass of wine, most likely. We don't see it here in John 2, but as another side note, we see Jesus throughout the Gospels drinking wine. You can choose to drink wine or not. That's totally your freedom. Jesus chose to drink wine. And in this setting, most likely, he was partaking as well. Just like a normal person. Which makes me beg the question, why do Christians have to be so abnormal? Like, if Jesus was just so normal, he was regularly in social gatherings. Why does the church seem bent on creating our own little abnormal ghettos? Where we isolate from culture, and we isolate from joy, and we isolate from parties, and we isolate from people. And meanwhile, I don't know, the person that we're supposed to be modeling our lives after just was at parties regularly, and in social settings regularly, and was hanging out with people so much so that he was accused of being a drunkard and a friend of sinners. I can't help but to think if Christians actually were more like Christ... Would non-Christians not at least be more intrigued to some degree about what it might mean to follow Him? Jesus brings satisfaction by keeping the party going. Jesus brings satisfaction by being the master of the banquet. In a number of reasons, but maybe in this one overarching reason, how does He bring satisfaction? He takes away shame. That's what's on the line here for this couple in this community. 
shame. Familiar with that? You're not enough. You know, shame is distinguished from guilt. Guilt is when we have done something wrong. Shame is when we are something wrong. I don't really know what you're talking about. I think you do every time you look in the mirror, or more times that you look in the mirror than not. That's probably shame. Or when you lay your head on your pillow at night, and there's kind of this ache, there's this like moral residue in your heart, you know? That's shame. And Jesus removes it by providing wine and himself. And he brings satisfaction and takes away shame. That'd be a good thing to write down, by the way. Jesus brings satisfaction and takes away shame. It's similar to what Isaiah prophesies about in verse, uh, chapter 25. Listen to this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast. And, and as you hear this, Tell me you don't want to experience what the prophet's talking about. And furthermore, tell me the world does not want to experience this. In fact, in many ways, our own lives and definitely the lives of people at large in culture are cheap imitations of what the prophet in Isaiah is talking about. Listen to this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. I mean, isn't that what we really want? Like we're searching for satisfaction in so many things, and what we want is this great banquet. What we want is fine wine and and great food and good fellowship. But ultimately what we want is we want this veil of shame to be removed. And that's what Jesus is doing in John chapter 2. He's bringing joy and deep, ultimate satisfaction. It's really amazing. I could not believe when I heard about this. I was not watching it live, but I think about the award season that is upon us once again, uh, starting with the Golden Globes, which usher us into... The Academy Awards, two years ago in 2016, Jim Carrey does a speech before he presents an award. And at this time, it's his first public appearance in months from the death of his girlfriend, uh, which unfortunately she took her own life. And he is there before this audience in Hollywood, publicly speaking and casually making jokes. And then also in the midst of the jokes, speaking truth. And at one point, he says this, and think about this in the terms of identity in satisfaction. Thank you, he says. I'm a two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep, he jokes. I'm a two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going to sleep to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, he says, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir, I dream about being a three-time Golden Globe winner and actor, Jim Carrey. Because then, I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this. And then he glanced around and looked at all these people in the face. I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. 
we're all on a terrible search looking for something that ultimately won't fulfill us. And Jesus says, I will fulfill you. I will satisfy you. And he satisfies us ultimately by bringing salvation. So he provides solution. He provides satisfaction. And then lastly, he provides salvation. Now, before I get into this, I need to go ahead and give credit where credit is due. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, period. Uh, and so in many ways, an entire sermon could just be a reference to everybody else, uh, you know, for fear of plagiarism. And I've never been shy about the fact that I really respect and admire and have gleaned much from Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City and Redeemer. Um, in fact, so much so, and I know other people like this too, I, I choose to regularly not listen to Keller's sermons, particularly sermons on texts that I'm going to preach because then I will always be tempted to essentially just regurgitate what I heard him just say. And so I rarely will listen to a sermon from him on a text that I'm preaching. However, when Tim Keller preaches on John 2, it's a sermon entitled Lord of the Wine. And it's what preaching is. And you need to listen to it. But he makes a point that I think is climactic and a central point that I want to camp out here on at the end is that Jesus ultimately here was providing salvation. And that's when we get back to this strange answer that he gives his mother. My hour has not yet come. You see, what Jesus is doing at this moment is foreshadowing. He's speaking to a longing that we all have. It's not just to experience good wine and joy at a great wedding or a great reception, acutely or momentarily, Jesus is speaking to the desire that we all have to experience joy eternally, forever and continually. And Jesus knows that he's on this earth with one mission, to bring his people transforming joy. But Jesus also knows this stark reality. In order for them to have joy, I cannot. In order for them to party, I can't. In order for them to partake, I actually have to abstain. And this is where we need to hear this, particularly as we go through this life struggling for joy. As we go through this life feeling like suffering is more predominant. We need to look to the joy that Jesus brings. Dostoevsky says this in the Brothers Karamazov. When there's a conversation going about suffering, and Keller mentions this in his essay, in his sermon, Dostoevsky writes this in a conversation between two characters on suffering. I believe like a child that suffering will be headed and made up for, or will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small mind of man. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts. For the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, of the blood that all have shed, that it will make not only possible to forgive, but to justify every evil that has happened. That's Dostoevsky's Christianity surging through his literary imagination and craft, Keller says. He says that he believes that at the end of reality, follow this, 
that the end of reality will be so astonishing, that the joy will be so incredible, the fulfillment will be so amazing, that the most miserable life will feel as St. Teresa of Avila was noted to say, like one night spent in a bad hotel. That all the suffering that we experience in this world compared to the joy that awaits us would be likened to one night spent in a bad hotel. You see, that's the kind of joy that Jesus is bringing. And when His mother asked Him to do something about it, essentially what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to do something about it. But not right now. Because you see, when I do something about it, it's going to be better than what I'm doing right here. This is just a foreshadowing. You see, when I do something about it, no one will ever run out of wine ever again. And so for now, I'm going to let you drink this fine wine. The quality of the wine is amazing. Did you notice that it was filled to the brim? But what Jesus is saying is this. You drink the fine wine right now. Because I'm about to drink a cup of wrath. On the cross. So you can experience joy forever. And that's all he ever thought about. And so of course in this setting, years prior to him going to the cross, when his mother asked him for wine, he thinks about another cup. A cup of wrath. So we can drink the cup of joy. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this story We thank you for the joy that is displayed in it. We pray that this joy would be real and meaningful to us, that it would not be fake or plastic, that it would not be overcome by the suffering which is so palpable and palatable in our life, unfortunately. We pray that this joy would transform and would break through. Break through to us holistically, where we, like master sommeliers, would be able to taste and see that you're good. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.